The scripture today comes from Psalm 56. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. And God, whose word I praise, and God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps. And they have waited for my life. For their crime will they escape? In wrath cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in, you put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. And God, whose word I praise, and the Lord, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death, Yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. This is the word of the Lord. morning. Thanks for having me. My name is Uni Kim. Uh, when I was at All Saints, I introduced myself as other Asian. Don't think I can do that here. There are, it's a diverse crowd. I'm really pleased to see that. Um, if, I, if you recognize my face from All Saints, my days at All Saints, um, forgive me if I don't recognize yours. I probably recognize your face and I'm like, going through the mental Rolodex to figure out contact app to uh, figure out your name. Um, so, you know, don't, don't hesitate to reintroduce yourself. I've been at Christ Presbyterian Church since 2013, serving there as an assistant pastor most of that time. Um, really thrilled to, to come and, and speak to you at Grace and Peace in Austin. And I hope, I hope that uh, as we go to the, the word of the Lord together today, that we'll We'll find a greater trust. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. <clears throat> Father, we, uh, we ask you to be gracious to us, for we are a people in need of you. And as we um, look into your truth this morning, uh, we can't understand it. And if we can understand it, we can't claim it. And if we can claim it, we can't, we can't internalize it the way we need to. Would you then, by your spirit, make your truth grow roots in our hearts that it might bear the fruit that you desire. Pray that you would use uh, this message to encourage people, people like Saeed, and uh, allow them to see their trouble in light of you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So on the radio this week, I don't know if any of you listen to sports radio, I heard like the best 
trophy winner, worst first date story ever. There was a Memphis woman named Faith Pugh who was asked out on a date by a guy that she knew from high school. And when he shows up, he ain't got no car. So they take hers. On the way, this is where the red flags start to go up, he asks her to stop at a gas station because he wants a cigar. But he asks if she can go in and buy it for him. So that's enough. And that's where if I'm her or if she calls me, I'm saying, get out of there. He, you know, you have, you have no reason to be there. But she goes in for some reason. She goes in and she buys the cigar. And what happens when she comes back? He's, uh, he's taken her car for a ride. Um, yeah, he's stolen her car. So she has to call her mom. Her mom has to pick her up on her date um, like she's a child. And, you know, together they use the GPS on her car to track where, they are, where the car might be. And they find it, surprisingly. They find it at a, a, a drive-in movie theater. So they go to retrieve it. And when she goes up to the car, what she finds is the guy on a date <laughs> with her god sister. <laughs> so obviously they called the police and he was arrested on the spot, caught red-handed. And so my question, my thought is, as I look at, to our message today, how do you bounce back from that on the next date? Like, how, how do you, what's the recovery process look like? I imagine, you know, uh, you know, she'll have a hard time. T- what if he, like, looks at her car too long? <laughs> Why are you looking at my car so long? I mean, what will restore her, her faith in, in men? I'm sorry. I, that was low-hanging fruit. Uh, we are... Continuing in this uh, series this summer on, on the psalm, Psalms of the Summer. Um, and at first glance, when you look at a, a series like that, sounds, that sounds like an easy, breezy summer movie kind of series, right? The, the Psalms are songs, and who doesn't like songs? So that sounds light and uplifting. And, but it turns out the Psalms are, a lot of the Psalms are a lot more like Tom Waits than they are Tom Jones, and a few of them are even more Tom York than anything else. And it turns out the Psalms, a lot of them are are, are for days like Faith had, where it's not just raining, it's pouring. In Psalm 56, we get to ask this question, what do you do when trouble persists? What do you do when trouble continues uh, to bear down on you and, and, and wears at you when it won't go away? How do you face persistent trouble without despair or anxiety or hopelessness or bitterness or cynicism? But instead you come away courageous, patient, even, even joyful. Well, there's the kind of trouble uh, that we have in this life that's kind of like the flu, right? You get it? It's severe. You feel like dying, but then it passes. And there's another kind of trouble that's like Austin allergies that never go away, and they're both really debilitating. 
And a lot of us are equipped to do this crisis mode kind of thing where, you know, we, 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 you know, we, we look at our troubles and we just bear down and we, we grit our teeth through it and we, we lie down and rest and then it goes away. But what do you do when it won't go away? What are your troubles? What are the things that you are going through? Illness? You know, some of, some, some of us are dealing with chronic illness. At my church, a lot of my church is in, in that golden, the golden years of life, and, and they're dealing with, with things that are life-threatening. Is it something mundane like, like work, like uh, the stress of going to your job and, 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 you know, giving your output? Is it the stress of getting everyone in the car every morning and getting them to school or to camp or to wherever on time and, and keeping them from killing each other in the back seat? Is it, is it that? Well, I know, I know one stress that your church is going to face and is facing now, and that's the loss of your, your pastor and, and, and the, the time period before you get your next one. That, that's going to be a season of trouble. And the Lord will do great things because it's his church and you're in good hands with your leadership. And yet there will be a struggle. There will be a trouble that comes over you. So what do you do? Well, we'll see... From this psalm of David, uh, that, that he can have hope. He can prevail in the midst of this because he has a prevailing perspective, a present participation, and a permanent preserver. I'll say that again. A prevailing perspective, a present participation, and a permanent preserver. <clears throat> so here's David's situation. Uh, the note before this psalm says that David wrote it when the Philistines seized him in Gath. Meaning that this psalm reflects uh, David's thoughts uh, during the events of, of 1 Samuel 21. Uh, and in that episode, what we see is that David is on the run from King Saul, and that's why he ends up in, in a Gath of the Philistines. And he's running from King Saul because Saul is trying to kill him, because Saul is jealous of David. Why is Saul jealous of David? Because David killed Goliath of Gath. And David killed Goliath and the people loved him for it. Because they could defeat the Philistine army. So here's, so Saul's trying to kill him and he runs away. And he runs away to the one place he knows Saul won't go and that's the Gath. That's to the Philistine enemy territory. And he goes there and he hides. So he's got the, and the Philistines find out. And guess who's from Gath? Goliath. So you can, you can just guess. The Philistines aren't really happy that David is there. So they besiege him. They come and, and, and they're ready to take him on. And on the other side, uh, Saul is coming. So Saul is coming. The Philistines are coming. And David's life is like an evil Venn diagram converging into a single deadly circle and about to fall on his head and squish him. David's enemies, he says, trample on him all day long. They attack him proudly. They stand up. Uh, uh, so those phrases in, in the Hebrew could be translated a little bit differently. Uh, it, it's literally, man pants after me. Um, and what that means is that they are bearing down so fast and so hard, and they are so relentless that, uh, that he can hear their heavy panting uh, as, as they come. 
They're standing up. Instead of uh, 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 they attacking proudly, they're standing up tall. They're standing up tall. They're volunteering. They're saying, I want to kill David. So this is the kind of trouble that David is enduring. You know, we have some pretty spot-on phrases in the English language to describe this. You know, like, uh, quit breathing down my neck or uh, stop nipping at my heels. Uh, Get off my back. What do all these phrases have in common? They turn to the, the problem maker and they say, hey, 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 quit it. Stop. Please. Enough. Well, you and I would be tempted in this spot to look only and always at our circumstances and think about how we can make them stop, right? But David turns in a different direction. What does he say? He says, be gracious to me, O enemy. No, he says, be gracious to me, O God. Who or what you turn to when you're facing trouble says a lot about what you think or who you think will take your trouble away. I could probably spend some time, a good amount of time here, making us all feel guilty, myself included, for the the, the refuges that we choose. Uh, the, The point is, though, that we already feel that way, right? We already understand that we're sinners and that we fail to see God in our trouble. Saying, turn to God, isn't new. And that's because circumstances are like clouds that... You know, as they stack up and draw closer, and as they get stormier and darker, they can block out the sun and confuse your reality. So that daytime looks like nighttime. But uh, the word of God is here to say the sun is still there. You know, we're all tempted to take a nap when it rains, but how many of you brush your teeth and get ready for bed? Uh, When you can't tell time by looking at the sky, we look at clocks. In other words, when the circumstances are not trustworthy, we look at something that doesn't change. We look at something that corrects our perspective. What we really truly need isn't a change in our circumstances, but it's a change in our perspective. We need a perspective that prevails over the the perspective that's being twisted and confused by our circumstances. Or where does David go for his perspective? It's God's word. Three times he utters the phrase, whose word I praise. As in, in God, whose word I praise, in God I trust. In the Lord, whose word I praise, in God I trust. Here's two things that this doesn't mean before we kind of establish what it does. It doesn't mean that changing your, changing your perspective isn't uh, about hoping for the best. It's not just having some nice thought there and, and, and clinging to it. It's not shallow sentimentality, impressions of who we think God ought to be, who, 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 who we want him to be, or who we, we think he should be. It's not uh, uh, reading footprints in the sand. It's God's unchanging and true revelation of himself his intentions, his character held in his word. It's also not a, uh, like a cognitive trick. You're not just telling yourself to think something different. 
You know, if you read this psalm too quickly, it kind of goes like this. When I am afraid, I shall not be afraid. That's not good counsel. That's like a bad Chuck Norris joke. It's, you know, Chuck Norris doesn't do push-ups. He pushes down the world. Chuck Norris, when he's afraid, he's not afraid. It, it's, it's not really giving you anything but, but lofty goals that you have no connection to. That's, that's not what the Bible does. And that's what a lot of Christians do, in fact, is they, they, they just try to flip a cognitive switch and, and have positive thoughts. Think the best. The Bible doesn't do that. It reorients your reality. So David can see his enemies, his own fate, the Lord's own hand in his troubles, and, and he can let his heart take comfort in that truth. And so can we. And because it's truth that informs his perspective, because it's not speculation, we can be fully present in our troubles. We can engage them in a way we can't when we're afraid to face them. We don't have to escape reality. We don't have to hide from our circumstances or bury our heads in the sand and pretend the monsters aren't there and pretend that we're not threatened. We can be fully present and fully participate in the ugly and difficult things that life brings us. David, in this psalm, is clearly angry, weary, frustrated, and more than all those things, he's afraid. Those don't sound like the the position of a strong Christian. And yet, here we have David praising God through it. You know, oftentimes we imagine that faith, having faith in the midst of troubles means that God wants us to be stoics, uh, unaffected and even keel, and not to be assuaged, get too high, get too low, and no matter what happens. But actually, the Psalms authorize you to be affected by your circumstances. They give you permission to have genuine emotions and react like human beings. In fact, it's that honest emotional turmoil, that honest engagement that the psalmist, it's in that that the psalmist so often become aware of God's presence and meet God in reality. It's where they find comfort. Knowing biblical truth, having a perspective that prevails in times of trouble allows you to feel every hurt, every frustration, and yet not lose hope. Because your reality isn't anchored in your circumstances, but in a more complete story. Your circumstances tell this story that you're in danger, your life is a threat, God might have abandoned you, but God has a bigger story in his Bible. The center of gravity is not in your circumstances, in the clouds, but in the sun, in God's truth. This is possible. It is. And it's possible for David and for us, not just not primarily because we're present in our troubles, but more importantly, God is present in our troubles. He's in the midst of them. And we have, in verse 8, the evidence of that. What does David say? He says, you have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? You've kept count of my tossings. You know, with our first two kids, we have three children. Owen's five, Milo's four, and Levi is three. Uh, Levi is one, sorry. 
skipped ahead. Wishful thinking, see, can't do that. Um, with the first two kids, we had a baby monitor. It broke somewhere in, in kid number two. And on the third one, we were just like, we'll see. <laughs> um, I mean, he's, he's one and he's alive, and so don't judge or call the police. Uh, but one method of, of sleep training that, that we used was to let your kids cry. And, uh, you know, it's not everyone's cup of tea, but you, you got to let them cry. And, and, and the method is that if you let them cry, they'll learn, learn to comfort themselves. And, like, the big rule is don't go in. Don't go in there so that they can learn to cope and they don't depend on you. And as you do that, um, you know, the, you use that baby monitor so that you know if he's, like, actually like strangling between the, the crib uh, or, or something is, is, is happening. Um, so we would put him in there, and then, you know, as hard as it was, we stayed away. But we would, we would watch him. I mean, he's healthy. They were both healthy. You know, they were both well-fed, and my kids are, you know, my kids are strong and robust. And yet we would watch them anyways. We'd watch them complain and cry and do all kinds of somersaults and pull on their bumper and try to stand up in the crib. And we would watch, not because we, we had to do something about it, but because that discomfort mattered to us. That discomfort was our discomfort. We weren't in the room with him, but we were definitely with him. Well, God does a similar thing. He keeps track of your tossings. He's watching you. You know, the, the Hebrew there could also be translated your wanderings. He keeps track of your wanderings. He watches you pace and tap your fingers and, and bite your nails. He, he sees you toss and turn and grind your teeth. He sees you wring your hands and he sees you, your shoulders tense up. He sees your fists clench. He remembers every tear, puts them in a bottle and keeps them as a record. You know, we tend to avoid really engaging our troubles. But God doesn't. He's there. That's what we forget. That's what our trouble is, is that we're like Peter trying to walk on water, and we lose sight of God and only see our troubles. And like Peter, when we see the waves and feel the wind, we forget God is with us. God is himself is with us. We, you know, we, we lack object permanence. We lack that ability to know for sure that when we can't see it, it's still there. Right now, my youngest, Levi, is one, and usually I have to take all the kids to school and, uh, or, or to, to daycare, and I, and I load him in the car seat first so he doesn't, you know, wander off, get hurt. So I put him in the car seat first, and you know how a car seat is. You, you can't see what's around you. You're kind of stuck there. And uh, while I'm in view, he's fine. But if I ever move, when I, when I have to inevitably move to, to get water or to, to, to put Big Brother's shoes on and, and things like that, I, I, I leave his sight, and he flips out. He loses it. He starts to cry. And as soon as I move back into view, he, he cries again. And then I move away again to do something else, and back and forth and back and forth. And my five-year-old, meanwhile, is saying, Hey, trust daddy. Perhaps you're sitting here today and, and 
you don't believe that there's a God. Maybe that's you. Maybe you don't believe that there's a God. But it might comfort you or might help you to know that even those of us who do believe he exists, uh, those, of, those of us who have placed our trust and our belief in him, we struggle with it too. We struggle to know he's there. We don't just struggle to know that he's there because he can be there, like, as if it, you know, we know he exists, but sometimes we don't know that he wants to be there. How do we know that God wants to be there? How do we know that the preserver is permanent? When you look at verse 12, David says, I must make my vows. I will render my thank offerings. I must make my vows. I must render my thank offerings. Vow offerings and thank offerings fall under this uh, specific category of the sacrificial system called peace offerings. And peace offerings are different from sin and guilt offerings. Sin and guilt offerings are things that you do to atone for sin, for mistakes you've made, to make your relationship with God right. And you have to offer these things in order to repair your relationship with God. But peace offerings are different. And they're a category of offering that you make when you're already at peace with God. They reflect the thanksgiving over the fact that you are made covenantally whole with God. How does, God, how does David know with such certainty that he's covenantally whole with God that, that he doesn't need to repair it and offer sin and guilt offerings? Uh, you look in verse 13. For you have delivered my soul. David doesn't just say life here. He doesn't just say my body. He says my soul, meaning his inner being has delivered. The moral part of him has been delivered from death. And yes, my feet from falling. David knows that whatever flesh might do to him, whatever might happen in his circumstances or in this world, God has already preserved his soul. So what does he have to fear? What can flesh do to him? God is for him. Maybe you're one of these people who comes and you think that in order to get God to fix your problems, what do you got to do? You got to make things right with God. You got to come and show him you're serious. And if that's you, I know how insecure you feel. I know that you feel like, oh, there's something else I I made a mistake about. And you will never have confidence that God will be here and wants to be here if that's the way you approach God. Instead, you have to know that he, he has made the way, that God has made the relationship right. And that's what David knows. God has made the relationship right, not David. And we know more than David because we know how God would make that relationship right. We know that the true and better David, the true and better king would come and endure attacks from every side. Men would pants down his neck and God would not preserve him or deliver him. But he would be sacrificed as the atoning sacrifice, the sin and guilt offering that we needed. So now we're able to make peace offerings because our relationship with God is made right through him. And we know for certain God's truth and God's person, God's story is for us. We know that he will always be with us. And if God is for us, as David says, what, fle- what can flesh do to me? 
I'll end with this. I, I, I once heard Vadi Bakum. He's a preacher. Uh, I don't know where he is now, but I heard him in Houston uh, many, many moons ago. Um, and uh, he's, a, he's an African-American preacher. He's a big, big guy, like, like really big. Um, block out the sun big. He's, he told a story about dropping off his son at kindergarten one day. I love this story. Uh, and, you know, he, he's getting out of the car, and his, his son goes, Daddy, can you come to the class with me? Vadi, this is kind of unusual. Why do you need me to come to your class? No, Daddy, just come. Daddy, Daddy, I really need you to come. And so he's starting to kind of feel like this is unusual. Maybe something's going on. He wants to check it out. And he says, okay, okay. Don't worry, I'm coming with you. So he walks in. And when he walks in, all his son's friends are gathered in a big circle. And he just sees their, their eyes pop open and their jaws drop. And his son walks to the front of Daddy. And, and he points back at Daddy. And he looks at all of his friends. And he says, see, I told you. My daddy is bigger than your daddy. <laughs> how do you know you can make it through trouble without being crushed? How do, you, how do you maintain hope? How do you maintain courage and find joy in the midst of it? Because this is yet another time where you're going to find out your daddy is bigger your daddy is stronger. Your daddy is here and he is for you. Where do you find that out, by the way? Where, when does David cultivate this perspective? Does he cultivate it in the, in the crisis, in the moment of trouble? Is that when he like, you know, tries to figure that out? No, he's cultivated it in worship. So if you're not facing any trouble, if your life is hunky-dory, teach me how, but also worship. Worship now and gain your perspective. Worship is not where we get answers and figure out how to live our lives. Worship is where we see God and see how he is life. And if we have him, then we can, we can sing with Horatio Spafford it as well. You guys know that story about Horatio Spafford? Horatio Spafford is the writer of that, that hymn, the great hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. And if, just really quickly, uh, he was a lawyer, prominent lawyer in, in Chicago, supporter of D.L. Moody around the turn of the, ninth, the 19th to the 20th century. And he, in a, in a quick season, he lost his four-year-old son to pneumonia, and then he lost a sizable uh, portion of his fortune in the great Chicago fire. And then he decided his family needs a rest. They need a vacation. So he... He decided we're going to go to London. And he sent his, he had to, at the last minute, stay back and, and, and tend to some business. So he sent his family first. And on the way, the boat capsized in a storm. And he received a note from, a telegraph from his wife saying, survived alone. And then as Horatio Spafford run, rushes to join his wife, uh, he passes over the spot, and the, the captain points it out. This is where your family passed. And he takes out a piece of paper and he writes the words, When peace like a river attends my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, 
thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. It is well, it is well, it is well with my soul. Let's pray. Forgive us, Lord. We forget that you are the creator of all things, that nothing happens apart from your power and permission, that you alone stand over us to grant us the things we need. We pray. We pray now that you would help us in trouble, help us in our time of need to see you. Restore our perspective, heal it for your sake, that we might stand, that we might trust you, that we might praise you. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.